Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Water is incredibly important to all life, but it also has interesting properties at all different levels. We're going to start by peering down to the molecular level and trying to understand how water works on a fundamental level and how that can shift around some of the special and weird properties of water. Plus, we find out about how water can be made from salt water more efficiently and ways that water moves up and down through the Earth's core. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are familiar with the molecular description of water, H2O, two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom bound together. And this simple molecule is one that we're probably all familiar with in some form of the other, and we all have constant exposure to. But you also probably are aware that water can come in different forms. It can be solid, liquid, or gas. And that's true, it transitions between different states. And if you know a little bit more about thermodynamics, you know that it can get incredibly complicated because sometimes you can sublime through a certain state or you can have varying states at different pressures and temperatures. Anyway, it gets really complicated. But all of those are still at a very high level. The idea of water as a collection of these individual molecules. But actually, what is happening with individual water molecules? Well, we know that they interact with each other in a certain way. And we can see generally on the macro level how water interacts and flows and moves or how it responds to heat and passes it along. But actually understanding how water responds to another molecule of water is a lot more difficult to understand. And to actually peer into the insights for how a single water molecule interacts, shakes and vibrates with another single water molecule required a team of researchers from over four different universities, along with a very, very powerful laser and a concept called terahertz spectroscopy. So what exactly is going on here and what was involved to, to achieve? Well, all of this research was done for our researchers from the Ruhr Universität Bochum, as well as Imro University in America, Radebaud University in Nijmegen, and University de Montpellier. And it was all published in the journal Agenvans Chemie International. Now, water is pretty much one of the most universal solvents. It is called the universal solvent. It's the most important solvent in all of chemistry and biology. And it possesses really weird properties. For instance, it reaches its highest density at four degrees Celsius. And one of the reasons why that happens is because, well, at that specific temperature, the interactions between each of the water molecules is in some sort of complicated way at its optimum peak, which means that at four degrees, water is as dense as it's going to be. And that is interesting but scientists didn't really understand why. They knew it had to do with the interactions between water molecules, but studying the single interaction between just two water molecules is incredibly difficult to say the least. And that's what researcher Martina Havenith, who's the head of the Bochum-based Chair of Physical Chemistry and the Ruhr Explorer Salvation Cluster of Excellence. Now this research group, as along with the research group from other universities, were trying to figure out exactly how these two water molecules were working and talking to each other. But the problem is first, you need to isolate two water molecules. And then you can try and look at them and study them. So what the researchers did was use a technique called terahertz spectroscopy. They send short pulses of radiation 
in the terahertz range through a sample of water. And some parts of the radiation is absorbed and other parts are left behind. And that absorption pattern reveals information about the interactions between the molecules. Now, to also do that, you actually need a super powerful laser with especially high brightness. And that involved researchers from Nimjet. And you also needed to do this experiment at extremely low temperatures because without it, you wouldn't actually have a stable bond occurring between just two water molecules. So they had to store these water mod molecules in two groups and cool it down using superfluid helium to as cold as four degrees Kelvin. No, let me rephrase that, 0 0.4 degrees Kelvin, even colder. Yes, they had to get it to near absolute zero in order to shoot it with a laser to study the radiation left behind in order to be able to possibly understand how two, some of the most simple molecules that we have, water molecules, interact with each other. Now, due to the low, super low temperature of 0.4 Kelvin, a stable bond occurs between just the two water molecules. At room temperature or any other temperature really, you might form a very weak bond, but it wouldn't last for very long and it wouldn't be stable. So this crazy setup involving all these super cool, super fluid helium, cooling down some water and shooting it with a laser was necessary to try and just trap and isolate just two water molecules. And when they shot it with the laser and watched the absorption patterns over time, they could see that the water molecules are moving constantly. They rotate, they open, they close. But when there's a second water molecule around, it can't rotate. And that's called hindered rotation. Now the interaction of water molecules is one of the pretty special things about water that they were trying to study. But what they actually produced was a three-dimensional data energy map which means you could understand the motion and the lack of motion in, in each dimension for the water molecule. And the energy of the water molecules changes when the distance between the molecules changes, but not just the absolute distance, the angle and the orientation of both pieces makes a big difference. Now, if that changes the energy stored between these two molecules, it also changes a lot of the properties of the macro level water, such as conductivity, density, evaporation temperature. And that can be all derived from this potential energy change just between the bonding and interaction of two water molecules. So scale up this crazy study to a large macro body of water and then you get a better idea for why water behaves the way that it does. All its weird and wonderful things that it does as a near universal solvent with a strange four degree density max point and all the other crazy temperature and pressure performance criteria of water. They can all be helped explained by this really simple experiment. It's just that performing this simple experiment required a lot of complicated instruments and very clever researchers. So this is some great research which is published in the journal Argonvant Chemi International. Now we all need water to live. We also need water for our farms in order to feed us as well. And getting fresh and safe drinking water is a huge problem. 
But as our climate changes and the world has less and less fresh water available that's clean and easily to drink, a lot of places are turning to desalination. And now desalination is pretty good at turning salt water into fresh water that can be drunk. But it's also not only expensive to build the equipment to do so, but, but also very energy intensive to operate. Because all of the different processes, for example, the conventional main process used at the moment, reverse osmosis, requires a lot of energy in the form of electricity to do a lot of heating and a lot of chemical processes that need to be performed on the water to extract the salt from it in order to be able to create safe drinking water. Even if you want to think about the simplest way of you know doing desalination, boiling water, capturing the steam, condensing it back down to to runoff water that you can then drink, that still requires a lot of energy to heat up the water in the first place. So researchers from the Department of Energy's Lawrence Barclay National Laboratory, Barclay Lab, have been trying to find a way to make, well, desalinization less energy intensive or energy hungry. And they've recently published a paper in the journal Nature Communications Chemistry, where they've found a new and interesting method that could actually be used to help desalinate water that's pretty low energy. And it relies on a concept called ionic liquids. Now, ionic liquids, like the name suggests, are a form of liquid salt that binds with the water molecules. And that's pretty useful because by having something that binds with the water molecules, you can then use an osmosis process to filter and separate out contaminants from water, whether those contaminants be build up dirt or other heavy metals, or even just salt in the event of trying to turn seawater into fresh water. But thermally responsive ionic liquids actually use heat rather than electricity to separate out and do the filtration process, which is pretty cool. Now, most reverse osmosis desalination works incredibly well, but it, it all relies on electricity to filter out and separate out the salt from the fresh water in the osmosis process. But Reed author Robert Koseski shows that, well, it's possible to use a low-cost, low-heat ionic liquid. So it's thermally activated, but the heat level that's required to thermally activate it is pretty low. So low that either geothermal heat or a simple solar heater or even industrial waste heat generated by machines or large pumps, you name it, could be enough to actually run the filtration process. Now, of course, you still need the complicated and expensive ionic liquids mixed through, but you could set it up in such a way that you have all that infrastructure in place, but the energy used to maintain it and to run the filtration process is actually pretty low. And that's because you only need to heat it up a little bit. You don't need to dump a lot of electricity into it. Now, to study the behavior of these ionic liquids and the what and it does to the water at the molecular level involved studying it using nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. And they did that with research from the Department of Energy's Barclay Lab. And what the researchers found is the, a playbook for how this separation process works. The limiting factor, the factor that governs just how many water molecules an ionic liquid can separate out from seawater, depends on how much of organic components are floating around the ionic liquid positively charged ions. Organic components just means in this context parts of the ionic liquid that are neither positively or negatively charged. So by varying this concentration level of this mixture in this ionic liquid you can help change or increase or decrease the effectiveness of this filtration separation process. 
And that's pretty cool. And the whole concept of the, using this forward osmosis with a low heat requirement means that now you can develop a plant on a much, much larger scale that doesn't use as much electricity to generate clean drinking water. In fact, it could be even done scavenging heat from existing running equipment or using geothermal or solar energy. And this is important because it means that there's another method out there that we can develop and turn into an industrial scale application which will not only help provide drinking water, but could also be used to clean up water from industrial applications, making sure that any discharge that occurs is as clean as it could possibly be. That's why there's some great research from the Department of Energy's Lawrence Barclay National Lab, published in the journal Nature Communications Chemistry. When you talk about the earth or the ground, you think of something solid supporting you, keeping you upright. But we know that the plates that we stand on, the continental plates, are shifting and moving ever so slightly. These motions are what give us mountain ranges like the Alps or the Himalayas, and are also what are responsible for things like earthquakes. But deep beneath those continental plates, there's a lot more going on there. There are, of course, to go past through the crust into the mantle and go deeper and deeper further down towards the core of the earth there's lots of different interesting geological regions now we know there's heavy metals and other materials deep inside the earth which are all swirling around in interesting convection patterns but actually deep inside the earth as well it's quite possible despite the intense heat for something such as water to exist down there now I know what you're saying, that might be very strange. How could water exist inside a rock, especially if that rock is molten lava? Or in this case, magma, because it's in fact beneath the Earth's surface. But the existence of water deep inside the Earth is, is believed to play an important role in geodynamics. And that is because the presence of water inside a rock or a mineral actually changes the physical properties of that rock. So a rock inside the mantle, let's say magnesium or a compound like serpentine, mica, or clay minerals, if these contain water inside them, it will change the properties such as the melting temperature, how much electricity they conduct, and other illogical properties. Now, how does the water even get into these areas? How does the water start to migrate deep into the earth? Well, most of it actually is transported inside the minerals themselves. Basically, water is absorbed into these minerals and then subducted down depending on the certain regions that it's present in, deeper and deeper into the core of the Earth. Now, this is building on some research by a team of Japanese research scientists from Ehime University, including Jun, to Jun Shujia and Koshiro Umeto. Now, these two researchers recently published a paper in the Geophysical Research Letters, but what they were studying is building on collected evidence about the chemical compositions of different compounds like serpentine, mica or clay, and how water can build and seep into those things. Then what happens as these migrate down deeper and deeper into the earth? And a lot of this involves a lot of complicated modeling. So let's say a mineral like magnesium silicon oxide three 
MgSiO3. Now, this type is an example of a type of mineral. And when this moves through, it's known as hydrous magnesium silicates, basically. They get subducted down by the shifting of continental plates through the Earth's plates motion, rubbing up against each other, and some regions sink, other regions rise. So subducting is one that goes down. Now, if one of these minerals gets hydrogen and oxygen sort of messing around through it, um, basically water seeps into these minerals in the form of a hydroxyl OH group, and that gets embedded into the crystal structure. Now, when you actually break down this mineral, they decompose into anhydrous minerals and water. So the water is present in there, it's just sort of absorbed in as part of the crystalline structure. And this can be referred to as subionic ice. Basically some very complicated crystal structure of a mineral where the water is sort of part of the picture. But the interesting part about this all is that these minerals are subject to immense pressures and temperatures. So the presence of this water in the form of the hydroxyl actually starts to shift around the behavior of this particular silicon oxide. And it's pretty interesting because it means that you can actually get the water going deeper and sinking even further underneath the ground. Because what eventually happens to all of these minerals is that when they get to a certain point, they just break down. The lattice structure that is holding that mineral together just completely decomposes and the molecules sort of separate out into different elements. But by adding water into the mix, this can actually change when that happens. Thinking about it another way, we know that adding salt, for example, to water makes it boil at a slightly different temperature. Uh, this is because you were shifting one of the fundamental properties of water by adding a mineral salt into it in this case. What we're talking about here is actually the reverse. By adding water into a mineral, we're actually changing some of its properties. And also, this has the effect of transporting water deeper and deeper into the core because when this mineral breaks down, it actually releases that water, which is pretty interesting. And previous estimates sort of had this sitting at around 40 to 100 kilometers of depth before you know they get melted and broken down and then they get lifted back out again because the water starts to rise up and build up back towards the surface. But actually, if you look at the properties for some of these groups, it's quite feasible that at temperatures around a thousand degrees Kelvin, with very strong pressures like 62 gigapascals, you could actually keep squishing and squishing and squishing this mineral all the way down to 1,500 kilometers beneath the Earth's surface, which means you'd be dragging a lot of water very deep into the Earth. And that is pretty amazing to think about, which goes to show that even something as simple as the surface of the Earth being stable or made of rock of some form isn't as straightforward as you think. Water and the water cycle is actually passing up and down through all of the earth. It takes a long time and has to shift through rocks and minerals, but it does happen. This is some great work published in the Geophysical Research Letters from researchers from the Ahimea University. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From the molecular properties of water to turning salt water to fresh water more efficiently and how water makes its way up and down through the earth's core by masquerading as part of a mineral. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.